Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. After we posted our FDA webcast episode last week, I found myself in conversation with many friends, some of whom have appeared as guests on the podcast. I felt two were so interesting that we turned them into interviews, and we're publishing them today for you as an added bonus. This interview is with Sunil Hosping, Global Head of Diagnostics at GenFit. Sunil took a more optimistic tone about the webcast than anyone I spoke with on the podcast or anyone else in private conversation. The primary reason for his optimism lie in his belief that liquid biopsies today, including but not limited to GenFit's own NIS4, are in the early stages of being able to provide a more reliable alternative to biopsy and perhaps even many of the non-invasive diagnostics available today. He expressed particular confidence about the ability over the next couple of years for liquid biopsies to identify fast progressors, often lean NASH patients who are the greatest short-term medical risk and are likely to cost healthcare systems the most money. As you'll hear, I promised to have him back for a full episode in late March or early April to discuss these issues in greater detail. Even in a shorter conversation, Sunil's knowledge and enthusiasm around this issue really excited me. The entire episode, including intro and exit, lasts 22 or 23 minutes. It's a really good investment of your time. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, patient advocate Donna Cryer, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. This conversation is with Sunil Hasmane, a good friend of the podcast, who is the Global Head of Diagnostics at GenFit. Sunil, how are you today? I'm great, Roger. How are you doing? Just doing fine. As you know, we've gotten a lot of response to the podcast on the FDA webcast. And what we're going to be talking about today are some of the reactions that you had sitting in the position that you sit. Because while we had a great cast of characters with us last week and doing interviews, nobody comes from a uh, liquid biopsy diagnostic perspective that we've spoken to so far. So I'll be excited to see how this goes. To start, I just want to use the two questions that we've used in the podcast and in the other conversations, which is on a scale of zero to 100, where zero equals no value at all, and 100 is everything I could have hoped for. Where would you rate the information you took away from the webcast last Friday? And then why do you give it that rating? It's a great question. And uh, by the way, a fantastic podcast for those of you who haven't listened yet. But my, my take on it is from, from that scaling system, I would say that my answer is somewhere in the 60, 65 score, uh, which is a bit higher, I think, than some of the other members of the, of the podcast. But to me, it's it's really about the subtle information that came out of it. So at, at a high level, I think I think one could walk away and say that, you know, there really wasn't a lot of new stuff. But I think underneath the surface, there were some pretty, pretty monumental changes. And, you know, just as an example, for the longest time, digital biopsy was not in scope at all. And I think the agency's now willingness to accept it or at least entertain that conversation with sponsors and, and the devils in the details, I think really opens the door for all kinds of subsequent work, including a potential shift in the endpoint. Because as you get to digitized biopsy, you can begin to enable all kinds of analyses that go beyond the traditional scoring. Um, and maybe that's something that we can talk about later, but that's just one example. And uh, the other one that I thought was um, really interesting was, was the endpoint. 
it's kind of going back full circle to a, a topic around achieving both endpoints. And another subtle point around that is potentially even a change in the Nash resolution endpoint back to what it was before, which is kind of a gestalt overall histopathy interpretation of absence or presence of Nash. And I think that will have ramifications on a diagnostic front because these are things that we're calibrating against. So just as two examples, and then there's others, I, I think there were some really interesting nuggets of information that came out of that webinar. Thanks. That's a that's a fantastic and detailed answer to a pretty simple question. And when we ask simple questions, we hope people will do what you just did. So thank you. I want to take the second one and run with it a little bit, which is you said, if they go back to the original NAS definition, that that will have implications because of how you calibrate to it. So it, what will it mean for people who are in the liquid biopsy or uh, liquid-based uh, diagnostic space? What does that kind of what does a calibration look like? How does how does somebody think about that? So if you if you think about it, you know, taking a step back, the original the original definition, actually going all the way back, when we say a patient has NASH and we talk about the NASH scoring system, there's a lot going on underneath the hood of the answer to that question. So generally speaking, a pathologist will review the overall feature set of the pathology and in their estimation, they will say whether the patient has NASH or not. And this goes well beyond the three subscores of steatosis, lobular inflammation, and ballooning. So on top of that, they will then do the subscoring as based on the NAS score. And what we're seeing in the field is there's quite a bit of noise around that NAS score and that NAS scoring system. And you can see that it kind of manifested in many different ways through high placebo rates in various trials, and more so in, in, for example, the NOVO study in, with regards to NASH resolution or achieving that that feature. And what I mean by calibration is, you know, we're as as biomarker people, we need a reference, right? We need clinical truth. And if clinical truth is is now this convoluted multi-parametric score with three moving parts or, or three degrees of freedom, you can see that that could potentially introduce more noise. And so we're calibrating to a much faster moving target as opposed to just, I mean, this is all hypothetical, but as opposed to saying simply the patient has NASH or not, which is a much more holistic call, it may be easier to, to then calibrate a wet-based biomarker, as an example, against that clear yes-no to NASH as it is to calibrating against this kind of artificial discretized scoring system. Just one example. Well, it, it would stand to reason that if you're trying, if you've got one shot, it's easier to hit one target than it is to hit three, which is kind of what I think I hear you saying, yeah? Correct. All right. One of the things that I've come to understand, I think in part from conversations you and I have had completely offline as well as other people, is that it may be that some components of that NASH score just matter a lot more than others. Yes. I'll just give you one example. And I think these type of things will begin to come out because once you start to have digitized slides, you can go back and you can begin to data mine in a way that you couldn't before. And you can do things through inference and through other sort of more sophisticated analyses that you just can't do just through a visual microscope. But there's been some recent work coming out of Dr. Stiles' lab in, in Lille where he's shown that through doing a bunch of deep work in explants, so in, in real human liver tissue in, in patients with high levels of disease, that there's actually a very, very robust adaptive immune response. There's a, there's a T-cell component to this disease. And what that means is like when you're looking at lobule information as a score, the biggest challenge with it is you don't know whether those cells are pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. Is that helping me regress the disease or is that really a sign that the disease is progressing? 
you have no way of knowing with that one score. But there are ways that you could tease that out through AI and different machine learning in that tissue. We've done a little bit of that at GenFit. We have a poster at that, AASLD, but you know, just preliminary work. But it just shows that there's some truth to that. And I think it's going to, even though these are small, subtle changes, I think it potentially, right, with, with the right research, it could begin to accelerate kind of our understanding of the field. That's that's fascinating. And I guess that aligns with, I hadn't thought about that in the context of the liver, but I know it aligns in the context of other things. I'm familiar with the case most personally relevant to me being if you start giving somebody a polymumab and they have melanoma, the tumor expands, the but the, and in fact, the cells that are in the tumor start to change, but you have to know within a certain cell category, which are the good ones and which are the bad ones. Simply, I think you say this is a similar thing. Yeah, absolutely. It makes it, it makes it, you know, in the same analogy, you know, it's a hot versus a cold tumor. Yeah, and the good news is my, my melanoma is nine years in the rearview mirror, and I don't have a fatty liver, so so I have exactly as much information about that as I needed to, and I don't anymore. Thank goodness. It raises an interesting question, though, which is if the FDA is committed to histopathology digital for the foreseeable future, and the foreseeable future maybe look like five years, which is what some of the estimates I've heard might be. A, does that five year percent right to you? And B, what is the benefit of approving the uh, wet-based diagnostics over that time period? How does that, how does that play out as benefit to the patient? How does it play out as benefit to drug manufacturers, uh, to, to treating physicians, kind of the whole everybody? What's the, what's the benefit path forward? In a world, in a world where histopathology is going to be around for a long time, um, it's going to be pivotal for a long time in, in phase three trials. What winds up being the benefit path for the uh, wet-based diagnostic as you improve your ability to tell people about their disease? That's a great question. And, and what, what I'll say before going there is the FDA, and it's just my it's just my opinion based on my experiences interacting with the agency. They're an incredibly objective group of people, uh, incredibly objective. They're not really beholden to anything other than what the science tells them. And I think the only thing that they're truly looking for, the, the reason why a liver biopsy exists is because we have the most data showing the prognostic value of a liver biopsy. And that's why we do it. That's the driving force behind using it. And so what they're basically saying is, if you can show us that something else, and it doesn't really matter what it is, it could be imaging, it could be a wet place biomarker, it could be even genetic for that matter, can achieve the same thing, then we're all ears. And I think that the biggest challenge from clinical development is that implies taking risk. And I think there's very little appetite for risk um, on the drug development side. So if I if I put out a, a paper tomorrow and I said that, you know, my biomarker test, if you select patients that have a value of this biomarker test above a threshold and that these patients have a much higher likelihood of progression over the course of a year, year and a half, two years, as compared to people with low scores. And this is how you can enrich, and this is this is prognostic, much like a liver biopsy is prognostic. The unfortunate thing, it's going to be difficult to find that, that first company, that first clinical development program that's going to move forward with that strategy because no one else has done it. And so in some sense, we're, we're kind of stuck. It's, it's a cycle, right? It's, it's, a, it's a cycle that perpetuates the same sort of thinking. So it just takes one pioneer. It takes one pioneer to kind of show the way. And I think it, if you if you look at it in a similar way, it was that same pioneering approach back in the day with Intercept kind of using ALP as an endpoint in PBC that, that now opened that, that entire development pathway. But blood-based biomarkers in general 
they're they're going to be incredibly impactful because we know that as as time goes on just in in order to identify and enrich for those patients who who unfortunately still have to undergo a, a biopsy there needs to be better stratification there and i think that's where you're going to see the most headway in, in the next few years but i i do believe and i am very um, i'm a very big proponent that you will find blood-based biomarkers having just as good if not better prognostic value than a liver biopsy and i don't know the time frame of that i think it like i said it's it's also based on how much risk the the field is willing to take but i'm going to just put i'm just going to put a number out there and i'm going to say three years i know that's very controversial it's not based on anything but that that i i think i think it's doable if the right people um generate that data three years until the um data is available or three years until the agency acknowledges i think three years until someone has a meaningful data set that they can bring to the agency. That raises an interesting question, right? Which is, if the data set makes the case compellingly, I'm assuming the limit we're pushing into treatment is that without approval of the claim, you can't promote directly. But I'm also assuming that that would be the kind of breakthrough that would become widely understood even without you going, without uh, the company that made that breakthrough going into direct advertising. Correct. Because I think the case would be made through the, the clinical trial data. But you do make a good point, which is you have to shore up the diagnostic itself and have it go through the appropriate channels. But the, the benefit that you now have is that there is a crystal clear path forward for that product where they may have not been before. And so it, it will accelerate that development too. If there is a path forward, I'm highly confident that the, the right submission package could be put together. Just based on our data alone, in terms of like our, our biobank, and then you look at the, the respective biobanks that are sitting around, you can make a case, not for all of it, but for a large fraction of it to consolidate that data, pool that data, and, and put forth a submission package. I'm very confident of that. That's fascinating. In, in fact, it, if, if there were mass media who, who've doted on this stuff, I think you just made headlines. One of the changes I think that falls out of that is right now, in the absence of drugs, the money tends to be in trials. Yeah, that's largely true. But even without much in the way of drugs, the transitional use of uh, wet markers that you're talking about probably puts the money in patient treatment. It's an interesting philosophical question. You know, because on one hand, you can say, well, no one's being diagnosed today and I, I, you know, I don't see the impact from a healthcare perspective, but it's the same. It's sort of an interesting comment because if a tree falls and you don't hear it, does it mean that it didn't fall? No, it absolutely fell. You just didn't hear it. So is there an impact to, to missing NASH patients? Yes. Have people quantified it? To a degree, right? They've tried to estimate it, but they don't really know, particularly in their own health system, because they don't have the tools to do it. That's one thing. If you if you kind of flip it and you say, okay, well, there's no novel therapies for Nash, I do agree with that. To say that there's no therapies for Nash would be wrong because we do have, you know, pioglitazone, and I'll get to that in a second, but that's that's one asset. You also have intense lifestyle intervention, and those things are not for free, you know? And so if, if you have a tool that can identify an at-risk population where you know what the potential is for a clinical consequence in a fixed period of time, one year, year and a half, two years, whatever the case may be, then the value case 
is there to be made. If you know, we all understand diet lifestyle intervention is meaningful. I think all of us can benefit from that level of intervention, just just from a psychological per- perspective as well. But it's non it's non trivial. It's it, it's it is expensive and it is a commitment. You know, it's you know upwards of two thousand three thousand dollars per year. So if you want to focus that effort on the right group of people, you need to, you need something to get you there. Um, so that's one example. Even with Pio, which yes, it's a generic and yes, it's lower cost. It doesn't come without its baggage. And you want to give that medication to the right people where the risk benefit makes sense. And I think once again, knowing who those fast progressives are, who are those people that are going to progress in their disease, you can make the case. But once again, you need the tools to get you there. So I, I, I still think there's tremendous value before novel drugs are available. Well, okay. So first of all, you just threw something into the conversation that I think you and I have talked about, but hasn't been in this conversation yet, which is the idea that what you're doing is not merely identifying disease status, but in fact, uh, predicting fast predictors. Absolutely. So, okay. Now, so I've argued forever on this podcast and everywhere else that fast progressors are where the money is. So I, th- I think that that's accurate in its own right. But the other thing I'm struck by listening to you is that if the liquid markers were also good enough to track disease progression at a fairly subtle level, you then have something that doesn't exist, which is a feedback loop, right? Yeah, correct. Right now, the best feedback loop you have is probably transient, that's going to realistically happen in people's lives with some frequency is transient elastography. And that's got some issues around positive prediction. It's handy, it's easy, it's well accepted. It has some issues around positive prediction. But since 60% of the people that you're talking about are diabetic and they'll be taking blood tests, then in fact, all you're doing is putting one more item in a blood panel and you can tell people how they're doing on their liver. Yeah. And you know, I, I can point to a few examples and say that we can kind of do it today, but I'll tell you what the limitations are. So just for the sake of this conversation, if you, if you look Look at FIB4. FIB4 is a. It is not a diagnostic. It is a clinical decision support tool. So it is an elevated version of, say, using a transaminase. So rather than using ALTAST by itself, which has considerable variance and considerable noise, FIB4 kind of averages that out and kind of adds a little bit more to it. And we know, and there's great examples of that from Regenerate and Flint that's pioneered a lot of good data on this, that FIB4 is your, can do both. I mean, you can look at it from a prognostic perspective, people with very elevated FIB4 above 267, high likelihood of progression, very high like, I mean, we have Kaplan-Meier curves on this. Intercept uh, had a poster on this as well. You know, you can also look at the change in that score over time, and you can see that people who have a reduction below a certain threshold at six months, that was predictive of fibrosis benefit at 72 weeks. So there's proof of principle that you can do this. The problem with it is it misses a tremendous number of people. So when it calls something, it's accurate. The problem is it misses a lot of people. But it tells you that that proof of concept exists. We already have feasibility that this can work. We just need to advance and add more to that basic building block to kind of shore it up. So when we look at, for example, like the the work that we've done with NIST-4, and I just say this just for comparative numbers, in absolute terms, if FIB-4 is used, you know, in some of our populations where the the prevalence of NASH and significant fibrosis is something like 35 to 50%, yes, it's high, but just follow with me. FIB-4 will identify about 10% of those progressors. And let's say that the total number of progressors is about a third. So they'll get 10 of that 33% or 10 of that 30%, where if you use technologies like NIST-4, which was more custom-built, more purposefully built in a NAFL cohort, you know, we're not perfect either, but we can, we can pick up 
somewhere close to 25% of that 33. So we're moving the needle in the right direction. And that's why I feel this isn't a pipe dream. The data is there. The data needs to get out. We're working on that. Others are working on that. And then what it's going to take is showing a kind of a proof of concept of what this would mean in the context of a clinical trial. And I think that's when the floodgate can potentially begin to open, or at least we can put a big crack in it. Crystal, this has been a fantastically helpful conversation as we start to wrap it up. Uh, not exactly about the webcast, which is the slated topic for the interview, but something I think is, is vastly informative and helpful as people start to visualize the implications of what they heard on Friday and the different things it might mean going forward in terms of patient treatment, drug development, everything else. Uh, with that said, is there anything about the webcast itself that you would like to call to people's attention before we wrap this up? In my, in my perspective, and, and, and while our conversation was a little bit tangential, I, I'll bring it back and, and tell you how I think it's absolutely related. So a lot of the feedback from the agency was, we don't have definitive guidance for you, but we're open, right? Kind of kind of in that notion. And a lot of the, the podcast members, not all, but many of them were kind of negative on that. I don't want to say negative, but they, they were they were less satisfied. There was less satisfactory of a position from the agency. And that's one way to take a look at it. I, I look at it in the other way. I look at it as a very positive thing, which is you can prove to them anything that makes objective sense and they're willing to listen to it. And that's extremely powerful. And that's why I think some of this data, some of these new emerging things, I mean, I really encourage the, the, the clinical development community out there to not pick winners right now, but to get as much data as you can across as many modalities as you can. Because if you're sitting there complaining that we're still using a biopsy, but you're not generating data, then it's almost like you can't complain that your candidate didn't win the election if you didn't vote. Point well made. And, and by the way, for what it's worth, I think if it sounded that people were more negative, I think the more general tone was that um, they're asking for data. Let's get them data. Now it's on us, yes. which is, I think, a, yes. which I think a, a better tone. That said, we're going to wrap this up for today. I want to promise you, if we can find a day on your calendar, which I know is sometimes challenging, that I want to put an episode in play in the second half of March or in April that talks about the interplay of drug development, if you will, diagnostic technology development and wet marker development as a patient benefit going forward. Okay. We spent a lot of time talking about what all of it means in terms of trials and getting drugs to market and all that. But with the COVID delays and all that, drugs aren't coming to market probably until 2023 is the estimate I hear most frequently. 2022 would be nice, but maybe, but, but, but maybe not. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot we can do for patients now, part of the double negative. If we can get the kinds of things you're talking about on target, there is a lot we can, and certainly for patients who want to help themselves. So with that, I want to thank you for today. I want to tell everybody who's listening that we will have Sunil back to talk about this and related topics in greater depth as part of regular episodes, sometimes second half of March or April. And um, have a good day. And thanks for your time today, Guy. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Sunil. If you have any comments or questions or observations or just want some feedback from Sunil, please send a note to surfquestions at surfingnash.com and indicate on the title line to whom we should forward it. Stay safe. Surf on. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.